A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A History of Europe Key Battles The Battle of Yamuk Part 2 of 2 In the early 7th century, the Eastern Roman Empire fought a bitter conflict with the neighbouring Persians. The Emperor Heraclius, thanks to a stunning campaign across the Middle East, forced the Persians to give up all the territory they had acquired. Both sides were exhausted. They had lost many men and depleted their treasuries. In addition, Persia sank into a civil war in which numerous individuals fought each other for the throne. Both Romans and Persians were probably too embroiled in these struggles to notice an extraordinary series of events taking place just to the south in Arabia. There has survived a vast amount of religious, secular and archaeological evidence for the 7th century from numerous sources, Roman, Persian, Muslim, Western European and Chinese. However, the period suffers greatly from the lack of a standout contemporary historian of the calibre of, say, Tacitus. From the Roman side, we rely on a few hints in poems and chronicles, and a handful of Syriac and Armenian texts mainly devoted to ecclesiastical matters. In addition to these fragments, later historians are useful but write in hindsight. On the Arab side, there are detailed descriptions written a generation or so later, but they bring with them a different set of problems. Their reliance on oral tradition undermine their accuracy, especially when it comes to chronology. They also tend to veer towards tales of personal aggrandizement, drama and repetition of scenarios, in order to plug many of the gaps in their knowledge. The land of Arabia was divided by the Romans into two areas. Arabia Felix, or Happy Arabia, was the southern area, today's Yemen, and one of the oldest areas of civilization. Northern Arabia was known to the Romans as Arabia Deserta, a landscape largely arid and volcanic, making agriculture difficult except near oases or springs. Here were some Jewish and Christian colonies, but the majority practised a sort of polytheism. Each tribe's gods or goddesses were viewed as their protectors, and their spirits associated with sacred trees, stones, springs and wells. However, even before the advent of Islam, Arabian society believed in the existence of one supreme deity, Allah. He was seen as being so far above the day-to-day concerns of man that he was rarely involved in religious ceremonies. Although the Romans never conquered the Arabs, they traded with them and recruited some into the ranks of their armies. This led to significant cultural exchange, particularly in frontier regions. In particular, an Arab tribe called the Ghassanids adopted Christianity and became became extremely useful Roman allies in terms of military manpower, providing a buffer against the raiding Arab tribes and as a counterweight to Persian influence. 
The Persians, in turn, established a close relationship with a tribe called the Lachmeds, who regularly fought the Ghassanids in what amounted to a proxy war for their imperial allies. However, by the beginning of the 7th century, relations between both great powers and their respective allies had taken a significant turn for the worse. For the Romans, the problem seems to have stemmed from religious disagreement, because the Ghassanids adhered to the Monophysite doctrine, like most of the Middle East neighbours, but contrary to the official Roman stance from Constantinople. By the 630s it was clear that neither the Ghassanids or Lachmids were in a fit state to play a major role in the events unfolding around them. The Prophet Muhammad was born in about 570 in the town of Mecca in western Arabia. Around the year 610 he experienced his first vision in which the Archangel Gabriel appeared to him. These experiences continued, and from there developed a body of doctrine and religious practice with which he began to attract followers. However, his growing popularity was viewed with considerable alarm by the leaders of the citizens of Mecca, who considered him a threat to its dominant tribe. In consequence, a plot was hatched in 622 to murder him, and he had to flee to Medina, the event from which is dated the first year of the Muslim calendar and the same year Heraclius embarked on his assault into Persia. Muhammad's followers fought a successful campaign against Mecca, which they had won by 630. Two years later, at the time of Muhammad's death, most of Arabia had united, submitting to his authority and religious teaching. A civil war subsequently erupted, which was won by Muhammad's father-in-law, Abu Bakr, a succession which, to this day, is still a point of dispute between Sunni and Shia Muslims. Once Abu Bakr had cemented control over Arabia, he began a war of external conquest. Whether or not he originally intended a full-out imperial conquest is hard to say. He did, however, set in motion a historical trajectory that in just a few short decades would lead to one of the largest empires in history. Having never previously seen the Arabians as a serious threat, it must have been a great surprise to Persia and the Roman Empire for the followers of Muhammad to suddenly burst from their homelands so forcefully and with such great religious conviction. The first step towards the unification of the peninsula was the necessary destruction of both Ghassanid and Lachmid buffer states. This can be seen as an extension of the campaign by the Islamic State to subject all Arab tribes. Their weakness seems to have encouraged Abu Bakr to attempt more adventurous military expansion. A year after Muhammad's death, Abu Bakr sent his most brilliant general, Khalid ibn al-Walid, known in short as Khalid, to invade Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, the richest province of Persia where he succeeded over several battles against the old, tottering empire. Muslim accounts of the campaign should be treated with caution. The sheer number of described battles, fought in 633 and 634, gives the suggestion that even minor skirmishes were promoted to the stature of a battle and that the number of enemies faced was exaggerated for propaganda purposes. What is clear is that Khalid's campaign was highly successful. He conquered southern Mesopotamia, leaving the Persian capital, Tessaphon, highly vulnerable.
Meanwhile, a separate force was attempting to invade Syria. Here, however, the Romans tied down the Muslim troops, prompting the chief Muslim commander of the Syrian front to request reinforcements. Abu Bakr responded by sending Khalid there to help. The region of Syria consisted then, as now, of three distinct zones. A westward-looking Mediterranean coast, a rich agricultural hinterland, and a much larger region of semi-desert. The coast was largely Greek-speaking. Syriac and Aramean-speaking Semitic peoples inhabited the agricultural zone, while the semi-desert steppes were already populated by Arabs, many of them Christians, but others Jews or pagans. Big cities were dominated by Greek speakers, though also with large populations of Jews, Georgians and Armenians, as well as Latin-speaking Europeans. There were huge Byzantine imperial estates, as well as flourishing cities and church lands. The area had a military appearance, all cities being strongly walled and some having large permanent garrisons. It suffered a series of blow since the mid-6th century. Earthquakes, plagues, economic decline. A series of epidemics starting in 540 had cut the population by a third in the towns, infested with plague-carrying rats. Meanwhile, the tented nomads escaped relatively unscathed. As with other events of the period, the numerous accounts of the Arab invasion of Syria pose many chronological problems. It seems that at first, none of the Muslim armies there were directed at the large towns or cities, instead sticking to the desert fringe. Having established themselves in strategic points in and around the Roman frontier, without much in the way of an imperial response, the Muslims made their move. Heraclius seems to have based himself in the city of Emesa, modern-day Homs. While his presence might have originally been for administrative or religious reasons, it quickly developed into that of a strategic overseer for the military and diplomatic response. The first significant Roman-Arab clash, known as the Battle of Ainadayim, took place in the area of modern-day Israel in July 634. The Arabs won a decisive victory and slaughtered many of the enemy, opening up great opportunities for further expansion. As Heraclius retreated to northern Syria, the Muslim army was left free to attack wherever it wanted. The response of the local Romans was to flee to the walled towns. Such action worked in the past, and there was very little reason to assume that their fortifications, sufficiently manned, would not survive any assault that the Arabs could master. Previously, Arab incursions had always been made by raiders, who, having had their fill of the Roman countryside and unprotected minor settlements, would return home. The Romans failed, understandably, to appreciate the cohesion, determination and perseverance that Islam had installed in the Muslim forces. This meant that they were effectively diluting their own military potential as these garrisons became isolated. Once the Muslims proved able to capture such strongholds through diplomacy or force, the Roman defensive position unravelled. Abu Bakr died on the 23rd of August, 634, and was buried beside Muhammad. 
In a little over two years as caliph, he had taken the Arab Caliphate from part of a network of alliances across the Arabian Peninsula to a burgeoning pan-Arabic state capable of squaring up to and defeating two of the most powerful empires of the ancient world. His successor, Umar, quickly proved himself to be a gifted orator and a shrewd politician through his emancipation of many slaves from during the earlier Arabian Civil War. Under him, Muslim forces continued to make significant gains, including the capture of Damascus in the late summer of 635, after a siege of about four months. After seizing the city of Emesa, the Muslims were just a march away from Aleppo, a Byzantine stronghold, and Antioch, where Heraclius was residing. Seriously alarmed by the series of setbacks, Heraclius prepared for a counter-attack to reacquire the lost regions. He accepted a marriage alliance with Yazdegerd III, King of Persia, in an attempt to coordinate the response to the Muslim threat. The plan was that while Heraclius would mount a major offensive in the Levant, Yazdegerd was to mount a simultaneous counter-attack in Iraq. However, when Heraclius attacked, Yazdegerd could not fulfil his part of the deal, probably owing to the exhausted condition of his government. By May 636, Heraclius had a large force concentrated at Antioch in northern Syria. The assembled army consisted of contingents of Byzantines, Slavs, Franks, Georgians, Armenians and Christian Arabs. This force was organised into five armies. Vehan, an Armenian, and the former garrison commander of Emesa was made the overall field commander, while the individual armies were led by one of their own, so a Slavic prince, commanded by the Slavs, and the king of the Kassanid Arabs, commanded an exclusively Christian Arab force. Heraclius himself supervised the operation from Antioch, and sought to exploit the fact that the Muslim forces were geographically divided. He did not wish to engage in a single-pitched battle, but rather concentrate large forces against each of the Muslim armies before they could consolidate. By forcing the Muslims to retreat, or by destroying Muslim forces separately, he hoped to recapture lost territory. For centuries, Byzantine strategy had avoided engaging in large-scale decisive battles, and the concentration of their forces would not only create logistical strains, but exacerbate tensions simmering between the different nationalities within the, within the empire's troops. However, the Muslims found out about Heraclius's preparations. Alert to the possibility of being caught with separated forces that could be destroyed, Khalid called for a council of war. There he advised his troops to pull back from Palestine and from northern and central Syria, and then to concentrate the entire Muslim army in one place. However, once together the Muslims were both subject to raids from both Byzantine Ghassanid Arab forces and prone to attack from behind by a strong Byzantine force garrisoned in Caesarea. On Khalid's advice, the Muslim forces retreated to Dara, a town in present-day Syria, near the border of Israel and Jordan, southeast of the Golan Heights and east of the Sea of Galilee. There he established a line of camps in the eastern part of the plain of Yamuk. Thus the Muslims succeeded in concentrating their forces and gained a strong defensive position.
the Byzantine commander, Vahan, was instructed by Heraclius not to engage in battle until all avenues of diplomacy had been explored. This delaying tactic was used to try to give the Persians time to organise their attack in Iraq and divert some of the Arab soldiers. However, a delay was actually more in the interest of the Arabs. Additional troops were called up from Yemen. Deliberately sent in small bands that gave the impression of a continuous stream of reinforcements. The Byzantine army still enjoyed a big numerical advantage, so decided it was the right time to attack. So the Battle of Yamuk commenced on the 15th of August 636. On the podcast's website, www.historyeurope.net, you'll be able to find diagrams of the troop formations involved in the battle. At dawn, both armies lined up for battle less than a mile apart, the Byzantines in the west and the Muslims to the east. The battle began when the Byzantine army sent its elite troops to duel with the Muslim equivalents, known to be specially trained to kill enemy commanders. At midday, after losing a number of commanders in the duels, Vahan then ordered a limited attack with a third of his infantry forces to test the strength and strategy of the Muslim army, hoping to achieve a breakthrough using numerical superiority wherever the Muslim battle line was weakest. However, the imperial army was unable to gain advantage over the enemy. The fighting was generally moderate, although in some places it was especially intense, and at sunset both armies broke contact and returned to their respective camps. The next day the Byzantines launched another offensive. The Byzantine left, that is northern flank, which consisted of mainly Slavs, attacked in particular force, and the Muslim infantry on their right flank had to retreat. The Muslim right wing cavalry counter-attacked, neutralising the Byzantine advance and stabilised the battle line for a while, but ultimately the Byzantine numerical superiority forced them to retreat back to Muslim base camp. Khalid, aware of the situation, ordered the cavalry of his right wing to attack the northern flank of the Byzantine left wing, while he, with his mobile guard, attacked the southern flank of the Byzantine left wing. Meanwhile, the Byzantine right flank were pushing back to the Muslim left flank, Despite stiff resistance, the warriors of the Muslim left flank finally fell back to their camps, and for a moment, Vahan's plan appeared to be succeeding. The centre of the Muslim army was pinned down, and its flanks had been pushed back. However, the breakthrough was not decisive. Khalid, after managing to stabilise the position on his right flank, ordered the mobile guard cavalry to provide relief to the battered left flank. Here again, under simultaneous attacks from the front and flanks, the Byzantine right flank fell back, but did so slowly to maintain their formation. At sunset, the central armies again broke contact and withdrew to their original positions. On the third day, Vahan tried another form of attack. He decided to press upon the relatively exposed right Muslim flank, where his mounted troops could manoeuvre more freely, as compared to the rugged terrain at the enemy's left flank, and it was decided to charge at the junction between the Muslim right central and far right flanks to try and break the two apart and fight them separately. 
After holding off the initial attacks by the Byzantines, the Muslim right wing fell back, followed by the right centre, but they again managed to reorganise and hold firm. Khalid again launched an attack with his mobile guard and cavalry reserve against the Byzantine left flank, and combat soon developed into a bloodbath. Many fell on both sides. Khalid's timely flanking attacks once more saved the day for the Muslims, and by dusk the Byzantines had been pushed back to the positions they had at the start of the battle. On day four, Vahan tried a similar attack than the one the day before. Again, the Byzantine right flank pushed back the Muslim left flank, only for the Arabs to counter-attack against the Byzantine left flank and force them back. Byzantine horse archers took to the field to prevent the Muslims from penetrating Byzantine lines. They rained arrows down on their foe, striking some Muslim soldiers in their face and causing them to lose their sight, hence the day was known thereafter as the Day of Lost Eyes. Over the first four days of battle, the Byzantine troops had failed to achieve any breakthrough and had suffered heavy casualties, especially during the enemy's flanking counter-attacks. So on the fifth day of the battle, Vahan sent an emissary to the Muslim camp so that fresh negotiations could be held for a potential truce. But Khalid believed victory to be in reached, and he declined at the offer. Up till now, the Muslim army had adopted a largely defensive strategy. But knowing that the Byzantines were apparently no longer eager for battle, Khalid now decided to reorganise his troops in a more offensive formation. Little fighting took place that day, but Khalid acted to cut off every potential escape route of the enemy. At night, Khalid sent 500 cavalry to secure one such route, a bridge to the west at a place called Ain al-Dakar. On the sixth day of battle, Khalid put into action a simple but bold plan of attack. With his massed cavalry force, he intended to drive the Byzantine cavalry entirely off the battlefield, so that the infantry, which formed the bulk of the imperial army, would be left without cavalry support, and thus would be exposed when attacked from the flanks and rear. At the same time, he planned to push a determined attack to turn the left flank of the Byzantine army and drive them towards a ravine to the west. Vahan, noticing the huge cavalry manoeuvre of the Muslims, ordered his cavalry to group together, but was not quick enough. Before Vahan could organise his disparate heavy cavalry squadrons, Khalid had fallen upon them while they were still moving into formation. The Byzantine heavy cavalry was soon routed and dispersed to the north, leaving the infantry to its fate. The Byzantine left centre was attacked at its rear by Khalid's cavalry and was finally broken, forcing a general Byzantine retreat. The retreating troops were ambushed and blocked off at the bridge of Ain al-Dakar and received heavy losses. Vahan retreated with his troops to near Damascus but was pursued by Khalid and his mobile guard and killed in the ensuing fight. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When news of the disaster reached the Emperor Heraclius at Antioch, he was devastated and enraged, but did not have the resources to consider a counterattack, and instead concentrated on the defence of his remaining lands. The Battle of Yamuk enabled the Arabs to not only conquer Syria and the Levant, but allowed them to later invade Byzantine territory in Egypt and North Africa. It could have been even worse, though, for the Byzantines. Heraclius withdrew his forces back to behind the Taurus Mountains, around the borders of modern-day Syria and Turkey. When local Byzantine forces who remained to fight were defeated, they must have asked why Heraclius did not support them more. The reason was that Heraclius did not want to risk another calamitous defeat, which could open up Anatonia to the Muslims. The year 636 was just as pivotal for the Arab-Persian War. In November of that year, a Muslim army defeated the Persians at the Battle of Gadisia. Like Yamuk, it was an epic battle lasting five days with a similar series of manoeuvres and counter-manoeuvres from each side. Also like Yamuk, the Battle of Cadicia allowed the Muslims to conquer large swathes of land. The difference was that afterwards the Persians continued to launch counter-attacks instead of adopting the more defensive position of Heraclius. A series of Persian defeats led to the complete collapse of the king's rule and the integration of Persia into the Islamic world. The killing of Yazdegerd III in 653 officially marks the end of the Persian royal lineage and empire. Yet the death of his dynasty did not lead to the permanent excising of Iranians from political power. Much as the old pagan Roman aristocracy reinvented themselves as the early papal families, within a few generations of converting to Islam, the Persian elites were able to establish themselves in the upper echelons of provincial power within the Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates. It takes more than a military victory to conquer a people, so why did the battle so decisively end Byzantine rule in Syria? Despite a thousand years of alien Greek and Roman rule, Syria still retained its own distinctive Semitic culture. The strongest force that held the empire together was Christianity, but the problem was the church was itself divided. The bulk of the population in some provinces belonged to churches regarded as heretical in Constantinople. Palestine was largely orthodox, but most inhabitants of central and northern Syria belonged to the Monophysite version of Christianity. Contrast this with the religious fervour that unified the Muslims. Heraclius first tried to promote a compromise doctrine, but this was rejected as heretical by both sides of the dispute. 
he therefore decided to impose it by force and tried to force the Jews to convert to Christianity in 630, but this only managed to turn them against the empire. The divisions remained and sapped the loyalty of the empire's subjects in the Middle East. For example, the Samaritans were a particularly alienated people who actively helped the Arab invaders. The Arabs, on the other hand, tolerated Christians. They demanded that Christians pay tribute and accept an inferior status, but guaranteed them their lives, their property and their freedom of worship. Consequently, the peoples were persuaded to accept Muslim rule. However, to achieve their goals, the Muslims needed to successfully defeat the imperial armies in the field, and their victories were in no way inevitable. Had the Byzantine Empire not been exhausted by its epic struggle with Persia, or if the religious differences within the empire had been better resolved, or if Focus had not killed Maurice and provoked a civil war, or if the Arabs had not been blessed with such skilled commanders as Khalid, then the Muslim may well not have conquered all the lands that they did. Had the Egyptians and Syrians stayed predominantly Christian, history in the region would have been very different. To add potency to the importance of the capture of Syria, after the first Muslim civil war, 25 years later, in 661, the Islamic world became centred in Damascus, under the so-called Umayyad Caliphate. The historian George F. Nafsiger, in his book Islam at War, describes the battle thus. Quote, Although Yamuk is little known today, it is one of the most decisive battles in human history. Had Heraclius's forces prevailed, the modern world would be so changed as to be unrecognisable. End quote. The rise of Islam marks the definitive end of the ancient world, with the permanent disappearance of the old Persia and the severe truncation of the Roman Empire. Muslim civilization blossomed in later centuries, where it kept alive and built upon many of the achievements of the Greeks and Romans, at the same time that Europe sunk into the depths of the Dark Ages. The Islamic Middle East was also an important cultural bridge for Europe to East Asia. On the other hand, for the next several centuries, the Muslims would off and on threaten to take over southern and eastern Europe. In the next podcast, we see the Arabs continue to advance to their north, laying siege to Constantinople, and to their west, push all the way across North Africa, conquer Spain and threaten southern France. In the year 732, they faced the Franks in the Battle of Tours, the next key battle in the history of Europe. Thank you for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.